0: This podcast episode contains content that may be sensitive to some listeners. The discussion centers around depression and risks for suicide. If you're experiencing depression or suicidal thoughts, know that there is hope. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. In the show notes, you'll find links to the American Veterinary Medical Association's well-being page, TVMA's wellness page, and other relevant resources.
1: You know, when I was at my worst, I felt broken. You know, I felt like, why can't I be happy? From the
0: Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, media coordinator for TVMA. We have two guests on the show today. One is a returning guest and one is new. Meet Dr. Jen Brandt. She is a social worker and the director of well-being, diversity, and inclusion initiatives for the American Veterinary Medical Association. She is joined by a familiar voice, Dr. William McCauley. He appeared on the 14th episode of Veterinary Vitals. He spoke about the importance of recent graduates getting involved in organized veterinary medicine. What he speaks about in this episode is quite different. He goes beyond the surface and shares a very personal story. He hopes that by telling his story, he'll be able to help others in the veterinary medicine profession, those who are going through something similar to what he endured. He also simply wants to acknowledge that suicide is a problem in the profession, and Dr. Brant, she uses her social work background to shed some light on his story and offer guidance to listeners. But before you hear from Dr. McCauley, let me properly introduce him. He was born in Tyler, Texas, attended Texas A&M University for undergraduate studies, business school, and veterinary school. He now works at the American Health Institute as the director of the veterinary biologic section in Washington, D.C. He serves as the go-between for companies that make animal vaccines and the branch of the USDA that regulates them. Prior to this role, he practiced veterinary medicine in Dallas for five years, hopping from clinic to clinic. During that time, he was suffering inside, but his feelings didn't just emerge overnight. This is when they began.
1: I guess you know, kind of start at graduation. Uh, you know, after getting through vet school, and you, know, you think, "Oh, good, the hard part's behind me." I went out and uh, did a small animal rotating internship in Charlotte, North Carolina. Had uh, a big hospital group out there. Did uh, the year of that, and then eventually moved back to Dallas and practiced for uh, about four more years. So, did about five years total in clinical practice. Um, and it was rewarding in the way that people talk about, you know, it's always fun to get to uh, deliver a litter of puppies and do that surgery that you just nail and the client is so happy and the animal goes home fine. But there, I noticed more and more kind of as I practiced for longer um, that I didn't really get the, the intrinsic rewards that I needed to, uh, I guess, to stay in clinical practice. And it kind of manifested with me. Um, it, it built over years, and it really manifested in uh, in depression. I and mean, I don't know how much one played into the other. Whether it was my uh, clinical depression that really affected my ability to thrive in the clinical environment, or if it's the other way around. But whatever happened, um, I kind of went lower and lower down that uh, you know down that staircase, and uh, got to a a very dark point. Um, I came very close to committing suicide back when I was in Dallas. Um, You know, I don't need to get into the details here, but suffice to say it was a real low moment for me, um, a real low point, but it was also a turning point. You know, it it made it clear that I had to change something. I had to make a big change in my life because even though I had, I guess what you'd call the, the outward appearance of success and happiness, you know, I'm a veterinarian with a good job and, you know, I own my house and a car and I have you know, great pets and all that and great family life, but it was just, um, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough for me. It wasn't enough to really get me past that point, and I slipped deeper and deeper down into that um, you know, depressive hole. Um, and so I hope today to kind of discuss what happened to me and let other people kind of identify if they're in that same point, if they're in that same spiral, um, because if you don't get anything from today's episode, please get this you can come out the other side from something like that. You can have that close brush with suicide and you just be at the bottom at the pits and you lose your job and it seems like everything is going out the window, but I don't know. I think, I don't know. America loves a comeback story. You know, we're kind of in the beginning of our own comeback story right now. There's a lot of stuff that's changing um, in our our nation and our world right now, but if there's one thing we've proven um, it's that tenacity and dedication and a little bit of patience will bring you through some very dark times. And I I like to think that I'm kind of living proof of that.
0: And so would you say that's why you were motivated to tell your story, to encourage people that they can come out from the other side and overcome mental struggles?
1: Yeah, because, you know, when I was, again, when I was at my worst, I felt, I guess the word is broken. You know, I felt like, why can't I be happy? Why can't I be satisfied with the station I am in life, with these, all this stuff that many people don't get the chance to do? You know, Not everybody who wants to go to vet school and become a veterinarian gets that chance. But it's just, you know, it, it took a while for me, I guess, to um, give myself permission to not feel broken that I was that way. And then I could look at it from a more objective stance and say, oh, you're not happy over here doing this. There's a thousand opportunities this way. Why not try one of those? And once I gave myself that permission, I guess, to to change up so much about my life, everything became a lot more uh, clear, I guess. I had a, a plan forward. And that was one of the best things was to have, to be working on something, to be working on a plan forward, a way to improve uh, my job, my my mental health, uh, you know, everything about my life. To have that way um, clarified for me, it was, it was kind of a, a eureka moment. It really was. Mm-hmm.
0: It's nice to have a vision for your life or you know, something to look forward to. Yeah. Okay, so I'm also joined here by Dr. Jennifer Brandt. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Brandt?
2: Sure, my name's Jen Brandt and I'm the Director of Wellbeing, Diversity and Inclusion Initiatives for the AVMA. My background is all in social work, so um, and mostly clinical so- social work as well as research and education. I uh, initially started my career in human uh, medicine in human hospitals, working with healthcare teams and providing individual clinical services. And hard to believe for me, but 23 years ago, I joined the world of veterinary medicine. And so that has been my focus for the last couple of decades.
0: So the next question I have for both of you. Um, so Dr. Brandt, you can go first is um, from Dr. McCauley's story, uh, what do you think people can learn from it?
2: There are so many things. I think in some ways, if I were to show people uh, what you can learn in the process of therapy, it would be a lot of the things that Dr. Macaulay has already talked about. Um, And some things uh, he and I had uh, had a chance to talk separately before this. and, And some of the things that he shared too, that he recognized that there had been this theme of isolation um, starting very early on, and part of that possibly fueled by this belief that, you know, I've, I've said I'm going to do clinical private practice. That's, that's my career path, and that's what I have to do, and so somehow if I'm not happy with that, I'm a failure, and if I leave that, I'm a failure, and um, how much that belief system might have kept him uh, frozen in place for a period of time. I think many, though, people will experience potentially a point of pain or suffering where um, the ability or the need to go ahead and try something different, as scary and as overwhelming as that might be, beats the alternative of feeling like you're just out of hope. And so Uh, what he had the capacity to do and he described so well is that ability to step back a little bit and, and question what he was telling himself. Like, is is, is there really any scientific evidence that if I don't do clinical practice and choose to do something else, is there any evidence that that's failure? Well, no, you know, not at all. There's no hard evidence of that. Um, There was also no scientific evidence that he was broken there was a sign to say that what he had expected private practice to be and what he needed for that role to be was not a match and uh he's a person who was able to find that match for him so i i think a lot of, of wisdom and hope that can be taken from his words and dr mcculley what do
0: you think uh, people can learn from your story
2: yeah you know um...
1: I never thought of it kind of taking that scientific viewpoint. Like what does the evidence show? You know, where's the, the problem in this scenario? Because I'll tell you, when I was practicing, I I worked in three clinics in four years. Um, And, you know, I kept, they were all very different. One was a 24 hour emergency practice. The other was small and exotics only. Then there was um, another one downtown and I kept going there and I didn't fit in. And I kept thinking, God, if I can just find that right clinic, if I can find the right clinical place, then then everything will be peachy. But the fact of the matter is the problem was me. Like I I probably should find my old bosses and send them an email. I'm like, hey, it was me. I wasn't I wasn't as good of an employee as I could have been because I I had all this other stuff I was carrying around. And I didn't realize that the issue isn't the clinic you're in. It's that I'm not made for clinical practice. And that's I always say, I'm not trying to down practitioners. I, I take my dog and cat and pet pig to practitioners now. We need practitioners. And someone who spends their entire career being a clinician, you know, being that, that hometown vet, that's a great calling. And if you get joy and pleasure and, and those intrinsic rewards from doing that, by all means, stick with it. But if not, if you're like me and it just doesn't, you know it's not the right fit, like I said, it's not giving up. It's not saying, you know what, I tried this, I'm giving up forever on vet medicine. Vet, veterinary medicine is so broad and so vast, and there's so many opportunities out there that it, it's just not worth your time to be stay in this miserable setting, you know, regardless of the problems you or otherwise. It's not worth your time to stay there and be miserable for years on end like I was. Know that there's a All these options out there and the AVMA, TVMA, tons of groups out there. They're wanting and willing to help you on your way.
0: So before I go on to the next question, I have to ask about the pet pig. What's your pet pig's name?
1: Her name is Piggy Azalea.
0: Very cute. And so does the pig live, the pig lives in the backyard?
1: Uh, She lives, she sleeps in the house, but she goes out in the backyard during the day. Okay. Yeah, she's uh, quite the hit up here in D.C.
0: Yeah, I bet. Um, and what's interesting, you were saying that it'd be nice if you could tell your former employees, hey, it's me. Well, on this podcast episode, maybe they can listen to it and get your full story.
1: I hope so. I hope that my uh, my bosses and my techs and fellow veterinarians that I work for that I'm sure I gave plenty of heartache to, you know, I have I apologize for not being um, the team player I should have been. Um, you know, I hope you forgive me for that. But it was just, it did take time. It took time to realize that the part of the equation that didn't work was me. I have a lot of skills. I'm well-educated. I'm pretty articulate and good at my job now. But it's just, you're trying to put a round peg in a square hole. It's never going to work. I had to take the time and really, I guess, hit bottom personally and professionally before I could say, you know what? It's not worth doing the same thing over again and, and expecting a different outcome. And so I need to change up something. And then that change for me was leaving the clinic, uh, moving up here to D.C., and, and taking this non-clinical job, which I seem to be a, a pretty good fit for.
0: So it seems like um, you kind of had to learn the hard way. Because um, my next question is, what do you wish you knew then, perhaps when you um, began your career that you know now?
1: You know. I guess it's hard to say what I'd do different because I'm always, I'm seeing it with my own eyes. I don't know what other paths were out there beforehand because as Dr. Brandt said, you know, the AVMA um, has taken a real active stance and really pushing wellness and mental health issues now. And we were just kind of getting started with that when I was graduating. Um, if I remember correctly, I think a and had a, a social worker or a psychologist or something like that on staff that vet students could go talk to. And if I had been, um, I guess, just more open to that, I probably should have, I probably should have gone and talked to that person way beforehand when I was in vet school. Cause looking back on it, I can see that I was starting to, you know, go into that depressive slide, even in vet school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I hope again, that people take from this, do something now. You know, don't wait and say, you know what, I'm just going to get through this and you know, in six months I'll revisit and go find somebody. Reach out to anybody you know and, and, and by this point I hope folks know that they can reach out to the AVMA, the TVMA, tons of support groups on Facebook, but do it sooner rather than later. It, it really does give you peace to kind of offload that because I carried it around for years. I had to have this um, persona, I guess, of the guy that had everything. The guy that did everything and was good at all that and got enjoyment from it but that wasn't the truth you know I, that was that difference between i guess how people saw me and how i saw myself and that caused a lot of stress for me for a long time
0: and then dr brant um what about in your career is there anything about dr mcculley's story that you'd wish you'd known when you first started your career that you know now
2: Gosh, there's so many things I think that you learn uh, along the way that the things that you think are big are not. And maybe the things that you don't prioritize really end up being um, most important for me. Um, I think when I was younger, I just didn't appreciate how really vital just the simple things were, Um, you know, the love of your family and the connection that you have with uh, friends and people that you admire and I think I spent um, a lot of time in what if, you know, what if this happens and what if that, and, and there's, life is not scripted. And as this pandemic is teaching us, we don't, can't always predict what's going to happen and we can't control necessarily what's happening. We can simply focus on uh, our own response. And, and quite frankly, I still learn that lesson. It's not like I have mastered that, but I think I have a better sense of that today than I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago when I was starting out.
0: So something I was thinking about throughout this conversation, because Dr. McCauley, you said that you were depressed. And so I think it's important to distinguish sadness from depression. Dr. Brandt, would you be able to talk about the two?
2: I think when we think about, uh, when we think about a clinical diagnosis, which depression would fall under, we tend to think about the impact that it has on a variety of domains. So our social functioning or occupational functioning, um, it can really start to inhibit our ability to go to work. Sadness is a human emotion. It is, it is a, you know, a natural part of the human experience. It shows that we have a connection with someone and, And although it can be disruptive, uh, I think for a period of time, it's not at the magnitude that something like a diagnosis of depression um, would have. Again, we start to look at just the impact that it has on functioning. And um, Dr. McCauley might have experienced that when it's depression, you know, you have trouble formulating your thoughts and there's just this absolute sense of despair and hopelessness that it's never going to get better and that there's that you have almost no power to make it be better it just it just feels dark and people have described it as feeling like tar like you you just can't get out of it um which is a different experience from sadness
1: yeah i'd echo that you know sadness we've all experienced sadness but when i was depressed it was it was like this this hollowness this emptiness inside me um it it, it sometimes manifests honestly like chest pain like not a not a real hard stabbing chest pain. I mean, it's kind of this dull pain that never went away. And you know, like I said, the, the physical effects of it. I put on a ton of weight. I wasn't sleeping well. Yeah, my mental function was. It was lowered. I mean, I just wasn't able to really. I wasn't able to function properly because, like you said, it was this feeling of I'm. I don't have any control over this. I have no control over my emotions, my response to it, my station in life. It's that hopelessness that really, I
0: don't
1: know, just drives a a stake into you. And it's hard to to pull away from that and realize um, I do have some power in this situation. You know, obviously physiology plays into it to some degree, but it's not everything. And for me, at least, when I was able to change my, what I was doing in life, my, where I lived, what I did, I got off medication. I'm not on any kind of medication or anything like that. Um, Lost the weight that i had gained, thankfully, I'm much healthier now. Um, and so it, you're, I'm actually surprised kind of how quickly things, uh, came back to normal for me once I made that one change and it was sizable, but it's not unheard of. I'm not going to the moon. You know, I moved to a, a different state and took a different job. You know, we have, we have zoom, we have Southwest that'll fly you anywhere in the country for essentially free, you know, once they start flying again. And so, if it is just the idea of moving away from what, you know, from moving away from your family and your friends, this is the time in history to do it, you know, move to where the opportunity is. Go, go find something that really that pulls you out of that because that's what it took for me.
0: Dr. Brandt, if someone like Dr. McCauley came to you with the thoughts he was having, the belief system he was having where he was considering suicide, what would, what would you say to him or her?
2: I think anytime someone presents a suicidal, that becomes, you know, in terms of triage, that becomes your top priority. So asking the questions of, are you thinking of harming yourself or dying by suicide? Do you have a plan? Do you have access to the means? Um, so that would be a first priority. And and then uh, provided that they are safe, then it really begins the work of tell me more about yourself. And um, like, like Dr. McCauley has shared, it would be about exploring that belief system that he had. So if, if he said something like, I feel trapped and, you know, I can't, if he would say, I can't leave, I can't leave my job. Tell me more about that. Um, so that I know specifically what it means. That I can't leave because as a part of that process, you start just. Therapy is often just really about peeling the layers of the onion, you know, digging a little deeper. And so we would probably pretty quickly learn that for him leaving meant failure And so um, it would be just introducing the idea of what if leaving didn't mean that? Or can you imagine a time when somebody might leave a job and it doesn't mean it's failure? Um, Because for some people to imagine somebody else doing it is maybe a safer, easier place to connect. And then can you apply that now to you? So if somebody else could leave a job and it didn't mean failure, in fact, it might've been a really smart move that they made and they're doing really well, Ah, oh, can you imagine what that might be for you? Um, and the process of that is is obviously providing support and this glimmer of hope when maybe there doesn't feel like any to just start imagining that life can be good and can be okay again. Yeah.
1: I definitely don't want to paint, you know, a super rosy picture like there's never any bad days. Of course, there's still plenty of days where the job frustrates me and I got to, you know, do a thousand different things and being pulled in a thousand different directions. But I, I guess, um, yeah, that perspective of knowing that, you know, tomorrow's another day and I will have another shot at getting all this stuff done and nothing I did today can't be undone tomorrow. But remember if you're suicidal, that's kind of the, the idea you're toying around with is if I do this one thing, all this pain will go away. and And I guess it took me kind of, stepping back from it and saying, yeah, maybe I wouldn't feel this pit like I talked about, but think of how my parents are going to feel. I'm super close to my family. You know, I have all these pets that, you know, my parents might not not, not be able to take in a pet pig. So what would happen to her? All the friends I have, my cousins, my sister, I wouldn't have gotten to know my nieces. You know, the idea that there's, there's more people that would be affected by me committing suicide than just me. And People told me that when I was in the throes of depression, but it never really sunk in. It wasn't. It wasn't like I didn't understand what they were saying. It's just none of that came into. Uh, it didn't weigh on the decision. It's just all I could experience was what I was feeling right then and there. I just wanted that feeling to end, mm-hmm. you know. And when I got really close at one time, when I got that close brush with suicide, you know, I noticed. Even when I didn't go through with it, it wasn't like I felt better about doing it. It wasn't about like, you know, that would have brought me any relief. You know, I, I, I guess that's when I started to say, you know, this isn't the only way forward. This isn't the only way to end this, this pain you're feeling or this depressive state you're in. Try every other avenue and, and find out which one works. You'll know, find out which one works for you. If this job hadn't have worked up here in D.C., there's another one I could have gone to. And there still is. And I think that realization that there's multiple paths to go forward from kind of gave me freedom to try one of them. And I got lucky, and the the first one I tried was perfect.
0: You were actually in an article um, where you told your story. And if I recall, I feel like it said something about how you were looking at one of your animals and that made a difference in your decision.
1: Yeah, so they were... They were there. Um, I was around the animals when uh, you know when this episode was going on. Um, and yeah, that definitely played in my played into my decision not to go through with it. Um, you know, we can argue all day long about, you know, did they know what I was doing? Did they have a sense for how depressed I was? And, and maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But I know that I treat them very well and I don't know if they would have the same quality of life if I wasn't here. Um, and I'd I miss out a lot of joy from them. You know, that's the thing. that The idea that suicide ends all your worries, you know, the real truth is it ends all your joy. You know, all this joy, all this good things I could have experienced. I'm getting married in June. That wouldn't have happened. You know, I'm going to have kids someday. I'm going to, you know, expand upon my family and do much better things, much greater things. And all that goes away. And that's really the the tragedy I think of suicide is that it robs you of all those future joys you could have had just for this, because you, you know, you wanted to end this, uh, this temporary pain or temporary discomfort.
0: Yeah. I don't know if you guys have heard of, uh, Brene Brown. She has a PhD. She's a researcher about vulnerability and shame and she has a podcast out. It's called unlocking us. And uh, I really liked it. And one of the things that she talked about, she interviewed someone who wrote the book called Untamed. They were talking about how like sometimes suffering is just, I don't know if it's necessarily like a part of life, but with it, you also have joy. I thought that was really cool that there's this balance that can happen in life. And sometimes it's okay to have pain in your life, I mean, it makes you appreciate the joy even more.
2: Yeah, I'm a, a huge fan of Brene Brown because she's a fellow social worker, so she's one of my sheroes. And uh, "Untamed" is written by Glennon Doyle, and both will talk about again that there's this rich tapestry, really, that this this full range of emotions that we do experience, and there are times in life we we can experience a real high emotion, you know, incredible joy, incredible happiness, the the fact that we have that capacity also means we have the capacity to feel incredible sadness uh, and pain. Um, And I I do like to tell people I've been a a counselor or social worker for 32 or 33 years, I was just recently doing the math. And in that time have certainly had a number of people who are experiencing feeling suicidal coming forward and i think one of the fears again is loss of control you know if i tell a therapist i'm feeling this way of course they're just going to immediately lock me up no that actually uh it isn't the case sometimes it's just normalizing that for some people the thought of suicide almost provides a sense of relief it's almost like a safety valve and so even the thought about it actually is what allows them to keep going, strangely enough. Um, So it's more about explaining what might it mean to be able to escape from this level of pain. And are there some, uh, some other ways to do that? And then it's really also managing that impulse control. There are a number of therapeutic techniques that we can use to expand that, that range of time from, I have the thought I don't necessarily need to act on it with my behavior. And so there are strategies that can be applied that can help.
1: It's interesting to say that. Cause yeah, when I was, you know, in the, the depths of my bad times, um, I would obsess on, you know, honestly how I would do it. You know, I kind of just play this tape in my head a thousand times a day, exactly how it would go. And, and you're right. It kind of was almost a, um, a safety valve, it was a way to release pressure, I guess, like, oh, at least I got this at some point, I, I can do this and end all this suffering, but mm-hmm. it was, just became so, uh, such the, uh, I don't know, the overriding narrative of all my thoughts, that just got mm-hmm. it, dream about it, I think about it, you know, when I was out doing stuff, when I was out having fun time with friends, it would creep in, and then that also made me think, What's wrong with me? Why am I not experiencing these good times? What do I keep thinking about how I would kill myself at some point someday? Mm-hmm. But like you said, it's something that I guess is part of the disease. It's part of the dysfunction um, that depression is, because that really was something that, uh, I don't know, when I think back of those times, that's one of the things that's real crisp and real clear to me was how often I thought about it. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's good to know it wasn't just me, that you know. that's kind of the, the typical way things go.
2: Absolutely not uh, you. And when I tell, when I describe it to people, I use the analogy of if you're in a a plane and you've got that uh, escape, whatever, you pull the string, whatever, and you you got this escape hatch that for many people, that's what that is. And so I think I've had many clients over the years that the minute they realize I wasn't instantly calling 911 and shipping them off to the hospital, that we could actually talk about this Really help establish some trust and uh, a way to have some dialogue, and that, and and like Dr. McCauley is saying, how habituated that thinking—that that very first time that we thought of suicide might be an option, and we got that little sense of relief. Well, we've now habituated to that, you know. And in, in some ways, we got that positive reward from having that. So of course, that thought would pop in again, and and then become more and more common. Um, and so I think we, we judge ourselves for having that instead of realizing, wait a minute, like that was my, my sign that I was in pain and I was suffering, and I was looking for a way to find uh, relief. And the good news is that there are a lot of really healthy strategies that are available. It's just a matter of having a chance and having enough time to tap into some of those.
0: So some of the strategies I don't know what they are, but I imagine that um, therapists are the ones that can provide and and inform people of those strategies. So, Dr. Brandt, could you tell me
2: the different
0: kinds of therapy?
2: There are too many uh, probably to list here. Yeah. So um, I I almost think of it like how many antibiotics are there? You know, there's a bunch and you, but you try to fine tune that right antibiotic for this. And then if that doesn't work, you might try a different antibiotic. And so um, probably most people listening have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy, which really focuses on this triangle of events. So there's a, there's behavior, there's our thoughts and our feelings and how those interconnect. And The whole premise of cognitive behavioral therapy is, if anywhere you can disrupt a pattern, if it's with the behavior or if it's with the thinking or if it's with the emotions, then you can uh, alter the outcome. Uh, Another one that's really commonly used in uh, folks who may be suicidal uh, and or engaging in self-harm is something called dialectical behavior therapy. And it has um, some core components. Mindfulness is one, uh, interpersonal relationships, also emotional regulation and distress tolerance. And so uh, it it would take, it it could borrow from elements of cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's also its own unique thing. And then there's several, gestalt theory, solution-focused therapy, psychodynamic theory, and Um, it's why if you're having one approach with a therapist, if you're willing to give it a try and it may not be a great match, just know that there are some other options to try that are out there.
0: And one thing we talked about in our conversation before was, you know, just say someone goes to therapy and, you know, they go, they go once and they're like, this isn't working. I don't know why I'm going. You know, what would you say to someone who goes to therapy
2: once and they're not, they say they're not getting anything from it? I would probably have them consider the same thing if what if a client said that to their veterinarian? You know, I have pets, I really love them, I want my pets to be healthy, and I went to a veterinarian once and I didn't like it. So I'm not going back again, you know. And then they might say, well, I could read a book or I could talk to a friend about it. And likely the veterinarian's going to be saying, hey, you know, would you be willing to try again? Because there's things that we know. And there are things that we can offer that really can help you maximize your pet's well-being. And so therapy is the same thing. It's not going to be a match um, with everybody you meet. That's, again, part of the human experience. And so part of it would be if you go once and have that experience, it may be, what did I learn about that? Do I know something more now about myself or what I might really be looking for? And so the next person you see, you might ask for more about that. Um, or, if let's say you've been to more uh, and you realize the, the therapists are saying the same kind of thing and you don't want to hear it, there might need to be some ownership that it may be less about the therapist and more about your capacity or your ability to take in some of the information that you're hearing.
0: And so, I've, I've seen a therapist, and I can say one thing is I remember trying to find a therapist and Right away, I was like, this therapist isn't for me. Um, and I think it's important to find the right one. And, and the one thing I did learn about therapy is, um, you know, I'll go into a session and I'll think a certain way and the therapist will say something and give me a, a broader perspective, kind of like a bird's eye view of what's going on in my life. Something that I wouldn't get from a friend or family member. It kind of shifts my mindset a little bit. And uh, I think that's very powerful. So, you two, have anything to share about the power of therapy?
1: I I have not uh, done therapy, um, so which is, uh, you know, probably the reason why it took me so long to uh, to realize what was going on and find a way out. Um, If I had known what it would take, like what mental blocks I needed to get past, you know, back before I got past them. Um, there's no doubt that a therapist could have helped me, I guess, figure that out sooner. Um, thankfully, I was, I don't know, I guess I I found the option that worked, which was changing career pe- plans and location and all that. Um, and that's what worked for me because a lot of my, uh, I guess, issues and sadness and depression was driven by, again, that mismatch for what I saw myself being at work or in my professional life and what I was experiencing. um, The fact that I wasn't getting those intrinsic rewards. Um, Like Dr. Brandt said, you know, I like what she said. Can you imagine someone um, switching gears? Can you imagine someone leaving the clinic and not being seen as a failure and finding happiness somewhere else? Because if she had said that, I could say, yeah, I know a lot of people like that. I know tons of veterinarians who've done that exact thing. And then it's not a short jump for me to say, oh, I can do that too. I can do that same thing. Um, So it took me longer to get there, but thankfully I I eventually did.
2: Yeah, I'm a mindset that uh, anybody, we can all benefit from a neutral third party, um, right? A, A key difference between a friend or family member or a therapist is that I'm not personally invested in the choices that someone makes. I'm not disappointed because they choose A or B. Um, it's my, it's my role to simply help that person explore that process. And because I'm not as personally invested, I don't know the person and I don't have, um, it's not a personal impact on me if they choose A or B. I, I'm, I had the luxury of being able to see patterns of behavior and how that might be playing out and pointing that out. When you're the one living the pattern, it's very hard to see because you may have had that pattern for 20 years. But when you're telling the story to somebody else for the first time, they have these fresh eyes. um, So that can help. And then I think of almost anything I've ever done, uh, you know, in sports, uh, having a coach was handy. When you um, join a new organization, having somebody who mentors you. And gives you just the, you know, the inside scoop that you might not know, uh, learn otherwise. So therapy really is that concept of having some, maybe some inside knowledge and and some insight to discover information that you may not otherwise. So I think we would all, we can all benefit from it.
0: And I know that um, it's important for therapists to also get therapy. I have a few social worker friends. <laughs>
2: Yes, uh, and I would say it's uh, it's interesting because as a therapist, then you will, then you know the names, the list of the people who are the therapists for the therapist, and I think I can't imagine what their job is like uh, because we already, you know, think we've got it all figured out and we're already rationalizing or diagnosing ourselves, and um, I think, again, the same thing in veterinary medicine, yes, you can maybe treat your own animal but there's probably some wisdom into having somebody else weigh in and have their opinion because there's just that little bit of disconnect from it. Even if you medically understand what's going on. And so uh, therapy is the same way. And I, my, my life would not be what it is without um, just the wisdom and the experience. And I'd say the tough love that came from therapy, like a friend may not really tell you what's up. A therapist will, um, and so I think of some of the lessons that I've learned were probably the most difficult to hear at the time. And yet when I heard them, it was also that light bulb moment of, uh, oh, okay, all of a sudden a lot of things make sense now. And now I have a clear path for where I can go from here.
0: So if someone is interested in getting therapy or maybe they already have a therapist, but they're not satisfied with that therapist, um, what's the best place where people can find a therapist I know there's psychology.com
2: yes I think it might be psychologytoday.com don't quote me on that but so you can go look by zip code I think for many people that can be overwhelming so a lot of people may start with just their insurance provider but then you're going to get this list of maybe a hundred names and somebody's a psychologist, somebody's a psychiatrist, somebody's a counselor, somebody's a social worker. Who the heck are these people? Who's even seeing um, anybody who might be accepting new clients, who takes your insurance? So that, that is a possibility to do that. Another one is the psychologytoday.com where you can search by zip code. Uh, I encourage people to find out from your friends, like who are they seeing and who do they who, and who do they like? because that might, you might find that already that's a really good fit for you or who didn't you like and why, and that might be helpful information uh, for the person. So those are some good starting points.
0: So anything else you two feel like you didn't have a chance to say um, about mental health, suicide, veterinary medicine, if there is any sort of overlap with that um, or anything about your story, anything you feel like you didn't get a chance to share?
1: Well, I do think that, um, you know, the veterinary profession has started to realize just what a risk depression and suicide is. Uh, I think it, maybe it took us a while to get to there, but we've, we're clear in that it is a problem, that it's over uh, represented in our profession, and we're going to have to be the ones to do something about it.
0: According to a CDC study titled suicide among veterinarians in the United States from 1979 through 2015, male and female veterinarians have a higher likelihood of dying from suicide compared with the general population. This has been an issue in veterinary medicine for decades now. The Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association published this study in January 2019. It's important to note that veterinary medicine isn't the only profession that faces challenges with suicide. Other professions do as well.
1: Always applaud the AVMA for bringing Dr. Brant on uh, when they did to really kind of spearhead that. Um, because I don't know, it, it seems like even though there's plenty of support groups out there, um, both for you know laymen and veterinarians uh, specifically, you need a group that's voicing all the concerns, like one place to go to that says that can be your. Um, I don't know, your signpost to say suicide and depression, it's a problem in the veterinary profession. We recognize it and we're doing something about it. And I think that takes away a lot of stigma, honestly, when the biggest name in vet med, which I kind of view the AVMA is, um, says that. We don't try to hide it. We don't try to minimize it. We don't try to say, oh, it's a problem over here, but not for the majority of folks. You know, The the young vets that I've talked to, a lot of uh, the more seasoned vets that I've talked to, it's not a a generation or a gender thing. It's, it's a, it's not even a veterinarian thing, honestly, but that's where, that's my community. You know, this is my professional community. And so I feel like um, I have a uh, more of an obligation to try to help uh, people talk about this and try to fix this problem. You know, our profession has all kinds of stuff, all kinds of issues we need to address from student debt to antimicrobial resistance to, obviously COVID right now. But again, I think people like a comeback story. And if veterinary medicine, if our veterinary profession says, you know what, we recognized where there was a problem and we've sought solutions to it and we were able to to fix it. You know, we were able to obviously we're not gonna be able to keep everybody from getting depressed and probably committing suicide, but we can do a lot. We can make a big dent in this. And I think that's the success we should be driving for. And I think it is Podcasts like this, the discussions we're having here, people can listen in and say, Oh, I, I kind of experienced that before what he's talking about. I, and, you know, take into what Dr. Brandt said and say, Oh, I can visualize somebody coming out the other side of that and being considered success. This is where it starts. This is these kind of conversations.
2: And I would say uh, piggyback on that, that there's hope. I, anytime I'm involved in a discussion, I just want folks to know that there's hope. And uh, if you, if, if the person listening is not seeing that, please reach out for help. Um, or if you see somebody who may be going through that, offer help. There's hope available. There's help available. Things do get better Uh, In the moment, it's hard to see that, Uh, but I think, you know, Dr. Macaulay is a perfect case of if you could just imagine five minutes down the road or 10 minutes down the road, can you imagine the life that you're having now with um, getting married and children and probably a few years back that that wasn't even on the radar of possibility. And so just please know that there's hope. Dr.
0: Brandt left us with such a great message. There's hope and help. If you or someone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please call the suicide hotline, 1-800-273-8255, or text MHA to 741-741. Therapy options are plentiful. You can reach out to the Professional Recovery Network, a peer assistance program dedicated to helping healthcare professionals, Contact your insurance provider to determine which healthcare professionals are in your network, or visit psychologytoday.com and search by zip code. Also, ask your friends who they like. Dr. McCauley concluded with saying that having conversations like these helps strip the stigma surrounding mental health issues in the profession. We wanted to leave you with additional resources that you can find in the show notes. One is from the CDC. It's called Preventing Suicide, a technical package of policy, programs, and practices. It's comprised of strategies that help communities and states prevent suicide in the first place. Another credible source is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The website provides information on what to do following a suicide. There's guidance for helping the veterinary medical community grieve, mitigate the risk of contagion, and focus on the next steps for prevention. The link to this resource is in the show notes. We hope this episode destigmatized mental health issues and made you feel less alone in the profession. The next episode of Veterinary Vitals explores the importance of making big changes like the one Dr. McCauley made to be happy in the profession. Making that decision was probably one of the hardest ones that I've made in my career. That was Dr. Taneja Crocker. Like Dr. McCauley, she wasn't in a job that suited her. Switching jobs changed everything for her, and now she wants to help young veterinarians and veterinary students find the joy that she found in the profession. Learn what strategies, guidance, and tips she gives veterinarians on the next episode. For now, please rate the show and write a review. Thank you for tuning in to Veterinary Vitals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TVMA.